0: Hey there everybody! Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: We are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: That's right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. Hopefully you are relaxing listening to this episode while drinking some eggnog filled with brandy or whiskey. Oh!
1: Or- not if you if you are someone who doesn't partake in alcohol or you're under the age of 21
0: i i learned recently that eggnog has a very high sugar content because they assume you're going to be diluting it with liquor
1: nice i i don't always drink my eggnog with liquor but when i do i use southern comfort this episode has been brought to you by (laughs) ramsey
0: the (laughs) second well he's always he's always scribbling his name on things (laughs) i was reading that it should be a brandy um i don't know if it has to be cognac but it does specifically brandy is the uh, the appropriate i think um what's his name truman eisenhower one of the presidents i think it was eisenhower had a eggnog recipe and had a preferred liquor George Washington also had an eggnog recipe. His recipe, he meticulously put down how much liquor you need to put into it, which is a lot. However, George Washington never expressed how many eggs you need to put into it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A million? It
0: was like something ridiculous amounts of like sugar, cream, everything else down to like how much you need, like the exact measurements. No eggs. Eggs completely forgotten.
1: Eisenhower's recipe is one dozen eggs, one pound of granulated sugar, one quarter quart of bourbon, one quart of coffee cream, and one quart of whipping cream.
0: Yes, and that's it's apparently very light and very smooth. And obviously, you share that with other people. You don't just drink that by yourself. Right, yes.
1: I wasn't expecting that was Eisenhower's single drink. Unlike Elvis's sandwich, the Fool's Gold Loaf peanut butter sandwich that Elvis would apparently order, which was an entire loaf of bread, an entire jar of peanut butter, an entire jar of jelly, and an entire pound of bacon and that was for one person. (laughs) so george
0: washington's eggnog recipe is one quart cream one quart milk one dozen tablespoons of sugar one pint of brandy a half a pint of rye whiskey half a pint of jamaican rum and a fourth of a pint of sherry Uh, mix the liquors first then separate yolks and whites of 12 eggs add sugar to beaten yolks mix well and then add milk and cream slowly beating it he said beat whites of eggs until stiff and fold slowly into mixture let's set in a cool place for several days, taste frequently.
1: That sounds like he was drinking to himself.
0: Yes, I believe the egg part was brought in by historians. You are in the mood for eggnog, and you want to make it the way George Washington would have drank it, which is just like Eisenhower, filled with booze. <laughs> <laughs>
1: If there's one thing our presidents knew how to do is get plastered.
0: Anyway, Zach, beyond getting plastered, what have you been up to?
1: Well, Seth, recently I have been playing Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty. Released back in September of 2023, Phantom Liberty is the DLC to Cyberpunk 2077. Along with the DLC, they also updated the game to what they call 2.0, and then they updated that to 2.1. And the Phantom Liberty adds in a whole new district, Dogtown, as well as various new missions, a new storyline an increased level cap updated combat vehicular combat a new ending and other assorted new features i put a few hours into the dlc so far i'm really loving it i like the new story story feels very streamlined and a little bit linear but in a good way uh it's still you know cyberpunk it's still open world you don't necessarily have to do the mission of the new storyline i don't know why you wouldn't because it's kind of the point of buying the dlc is for the storyline but the the pacing of the storyline moves a lot faster you're not like waiting a few days for someone to call you it's usually you're waiting like a day at the most for the next part of the mission to come about. Um, and it does kind of make the the game feel like it's moving along at a nicer pace. One thing I did really like, though, is in the updates they made to 2.0 and 2.1. One of these updates I thought was very nice, which was tying your armor to your cyberware and perks as opposed to your clothing. So something that I've always been kind of bothered by in role-playing games as of late is that the clothing you wear is tied directly to your armor and health. So if if you want to have better armor, you have to wear better clothing. And sometimes that makes you look silly. Cyberpunk 2077 fixed this issue a while ago where you could assign a outfit and the clothing that you wore for your armor class and such would be essentially hidden by the outfit that you were wearing. However, I still think it's kind of silly that you'll find a suit and the suit will sometimes have better armor than the bulletproof vest that you have. Or like you find a cloth hat and it it has better armor than like a military helmet. Yeah, I'm
0: of the opinion that I, I like collecting and mixing, matching my clothes so that and i And you can weird. still do
1: that. You still have the ability to do that, but it's no longer tied to your armor. There's some of the clothes still offer perks. So if you pick up like net runner gear, it's going to maybe give you perks with net running stuff. Or if you pick up like an, uh, a bulletproof vest, it might give you a, a plus 25 on your health. But a majority of your armor is now tied directly to... your cyberware and upgrading your cyberware and there is now a, a way to upgrade your cyberware as opposed to just buying new cyberware you still have to go to a ripper dock but you can now use parts to upgrade your cyberware to different tiers and you can find the parts in like missions they're usually in boxes and stuff when you're just going through missions um so they've done a lot of stuff to kind of rework that the the vehicle combat i thought was pretty fun that they added in basically you now have the option to shoot people from your car, which is always a fun option, but this could also mean that gangs will decide that they want to pick a fight with you randomly while you're driving, Um, which could, you know, make Night City a little more treacherous. There's also a couple other just general combat changes that they've made. It feels like when you're fighting like a group of enemies, they seem to balance themselves out a bit better, so there will always, almost always be someone who's like primarily trying to hack you as opposed to just like three guys with guns who are really bad at their job. And they've done other things to fix, I think, some of the plateauing you might get when you get to a higher levels. So, for example, by the time I was done with Cyberpunk initially, I had this ability to, when I would quick hack someone, I could do a system reset on them and it would insta kill them. Um, they wouldn't die they would just kind of fall over and never get back up again they'd technically still be alive because you could see them like moving around but they'd be incapacitated they'd
0: just be in a nightmare over and over again you doctor destiny them
1: I just doctor destiny them but you know with these updates they've kind of nerfed that a little bit so the, but the same ability will injure enemies it won't necessarily incap them permanently if I keep using it on someone it will incap them but I feel a little bit like I don't know it feels a bit more of a challenge some of the weapon balancing has been fixed as well um so for example the pistol that you get from johnny at one point is a very powerful weapon and pretty much there's no reason to use any other pistol once you get it in the original run of cyberpunk in this updated version they've balanced things out so that like you might pick up a gun that has faster firing rate but has a slightly lower damage but it might have better recoil and all of that is clearly stated in the stats as opposed to just being like a green arrow meaning it's better or a red arrow meaning it's worse you'll actually see the like the bar where it's better, where it's worse, where like why you might want to choose it. So they kind of got a little bit more nitty gritty with stuff like that, which I think is appreciative for someone who is. I'm I'm already like level fifty, and the level cap has been increased to sixty. So I'm like already pretty high level in the game. So it's appreciative to me as someone like picking up weapons and being like, I'm level fifty. Do I really need to pick up like every weapon I find in the game? Yes. <laughs> I still do.
0: Yes, because I just go and sell them. It's like what my character in Baldur's Gate three, who just continues to collect money, but I've never spent it. So I have somewhere in the realm of like 30,000 gold or something silly. Apparently there's a weapon that if you put your gold on somebody and stab them it does damage equal to the amount of every, like... It was like something like every 300 gold piece iterations, it did more it did additional damage. So you could just reverse pickpocket and put like 10,000 gold pieces on somebody and then stab them and it would utterly destroy them.
1: Seth, what about you? What have you been recently playing?
0: Well, recently I've been playing Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, The First Cases, which we talked about a little bit, not the last time, but I think the time before I was talking about Hercule and the Mortar on the Orient Express. Hercule and the First Cases was actually developed by a different studio. It was developed by Blazing Griffin, and it was published by Mike Rhodes, um, and it was released back in September of 2021. And you discover an untold crime story from the mysterious youth of the famous detective Hercule Poirot. Uh, you play as a young Hercule Poirot in a case that is very unique to the game, and it definitely plays differently than the Hercule Poirot murder on the Orient Express, as it's more of a game puzzler versus a cinematic puzzler so there's a lot more uh, it's like an isometric view it's a little more convoluted in regards to the puzzles and the first tutorial case is you're trying to find a missing uh, necklace from the owner of an estate you eventually go into the, the real cases later so that first case you're like a police officer it's like your first day on the police force and then later you play as a young Hercule Perrault who's older than the Hercule Perrault that you play in the tutorial. Okay. So he's a, a young old Hercule Poirot. And you uh, you have to solve a murder that takes place entirely within the realms of one mansion with the people who can't leave kind of thing. So it's like a closed box um, murder mystery. So yeah, it's a, it's fun. It's a different take on the, the game than the murder in the Orient Express. But I like my Sherlock Holmes games. I like my Hercule Poirot games. I like any type of um, murder mystery detective style games. So I definitely... Um, I'm enjoying the first cases, and so yeah, so that's what I've been uh, playing uh, recently-ish.
1: Nice. Yeah, you do like your Hercule Poirot.
0: I've played most of Frogware Sherlock Holmes games, and I've played a good portion of the Hercule Poirot games. I like the aspect of murder mysteries. I like novelizations. I like movies. I like games. I like even playing like I would play uh, the Law and Order and CSI games. I like trying to figure out whodunits. We actually got an advent calendar that is a uh, murder mystery for the holiday season. But it came so late that we'll be playing it well after Christmas. But it is a every day you get more clues and then you have to solve the murder at the end. So yeah, I just like puzzles.
1: Today we're not talking about puzzles. We're not talking about cyberpunk. We're talking about literature. Today we're talking about one of the great pieces of fantasy literature, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Uh, We're not talking about the books, we're talking about the games, because we don't talk about books on this podcast unless they're related to video games.
0: That's right, like Agatha Christie books.
1: That's right. In terms of memories of any Lord of the Rings video games, I remember that we owned an MS-DOS version of The Lord of the Rings Volume 1. I remember it was a weird game, uh, in the sense that I remember playing it for a bit, and then I think all of my party members died except for me. Oh, yeah. By around the time I left the Shire.
0: No, you can't even leave the Shire. It's tough. I remember this game a little bit more clearly than probably you did because I was older when I was playing it.
1: Yeah, you also probably actually played it because I think I just popped it in one day and like tried it out.
0: Yeah, no, I actually played it, but it is a tough game. You play as proto and you have to go around and you have to recruit the other hobbits and you have to leave the shire which is fine you spend a little while recruiting sam and mary and pippin and you get a little group of hobbits that are like following each other then you leave the shire and you get attacked by wargs and the wargs kill you
1: Mm -hmm. i remember that
0: i did everything that i could to try and circumvent and figure out how to get through it to be fair i haven't approached it as an adult yet i've only played the game as a child and it was very difficult the game does have a part two which I think we'll talk about in this episode we only had part one I'm pretty sure it came from Buckabook and I think one of the starkest memory I have of this game was the the opening title screen was like Lord of the Rings part one set in like a mountain with like molten lava like rolling down and I think that was kind of like the thing that really sits in my mind, as well as like the character portraits that were in the game. Um, I think they had some like some very well drawn like cartoony images of the characters. And this came this game came out pre Lord of the Rings the movie, and I think it was out a little bit after or concurrently with the animated film.
1: Uh the animated movie came out in the seventies, I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, the anime movie was out well out then. Was it Frodo the Nine Fingers?
1: Frodo. Frodo the Nine fingers. fingers. That's the, yeah, that's the.
0: That's what the movie's called.
1: You know, that was the Return of the King movie. 1977 was the Hobbit movie. 1978 is a Ralph Bakshi film with the rotoscoped people. And then in 1980, they did the Return of the King uh, with Chaz. Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. Started
0: with a hobbit in Gollum's cave of gloom. Obviously, there was visual medium of that the cartoon and but this was probably the first visual medium that we encountered that was not a 70s cartoon
1: (laughs) right yeah yeah for sure now getting into the history of the Lord of the Rings in terms of the games we'll start with of course the history of the books so the Lord of the Rings books originally were published beginning in 1954 by J.R.R. Tolkien J.R.R. stands for John Ronald Raoul and uh, Tolkien was born on January 3rd 1893 in Bloemfontein, Orange Free State, and briefly served in World War One as an officer. He was uh, commissioned as an officer. He did not volunteer. And in World War II he served as a cryptographer. The Lord of the Rings actually serves as a follow-up. Tolkien had written a 1937 book called The Hobbit, which was sold as a children's book. It did fairly well, and Tolkien decided he was going to write a sequel, but ended up working very hard on his sequel and it became three books uh, that were also no longer a children's story. Uh, And this sequel was The Lord of the Rings, uh, which took some time to be written. He wrote it from the period of 1937 until around 1949 with uh, uh, obviously taking breaks because a a war happened. The plot of The Lord of the Rings, for anyone unfamiliar, is about a group of hobbits who are short-statured fantasy people with very hairy feet
0: who are decidedly not halflings because when D&D came out with their first edition, they called their halflings Hobbits and the Tolkien Estate said no, and sued D&D, and D&D said, just kidding, they're halflings.
1: Right, yes. Now, one of these hobbits is named Frodo Baggins, and he inherits a gold ring from his uncle, uh, and he is then quested to destroy the ring that he inherited from his uncle. Now, his uncle doesn't die. His uncle runs away on his birthday party.
0: And his uncle is Bilbo.
1: The reason he must destroy this ring is because if it falls into the hands of a being known as Sauron, then Sauron's going to use the ring to destroy the world, because... Sauron is evil and the ring is the ring of power. The books are set in Middle-earth, which is a fictional world intended to be The past of our current earth. In fact, The Hobbit has a line in the prologue uh, where it describes that the age of Middle Earth is the age before man. It is the age of elves and such. And the age that we are in is the age of man, where we don't have elves anymore and we don't have hobbits anymore. There's still humans that live there, but it's also occupied by hobbits, elves, ents, trolls, dragons, and wizards. And there's a whole bunch of lore around it. Like, wizards aren't really wizards, they're actually angels, kind of they're a starry they fell from the sky they're they're representative i
0: thought they were like stars or something like they're like they're they're called a starry they they they, are are,
1: they're angels that were sent to middle earth
0: yes and like gandalf at one point in time says that he lived 80 lifetimes of somebody or something like that yeah
1: yeah gandalf is like ancient he's also not the best wizard but he's the one that they have and then there's uh saruman who's saruman of many colors also called saruman the white and then there's radagast the brown and uh there are the two blue wizards which I don't remember their names and I'm pretty sure when they're referenced in The Hobbit Gandalf also doesn't remember their names I mean Radagast
0: the Brown is the reason why the eagles go and rescue uh, Gandalf from the tower.
1: Radagast the Brown sure does like putting himself in places that he doesn't belong like the Peter Jackson Hobbit movies. Now (laughs) since its release The Lord of the Rings has been regarded as one of possibly the greatest fantasy stories of all time the series has been translated into more than 38 languages and has been adapted into radio, theater, film. And of course, the reason we're talking about it today, video games. Beyond the obvious influence of the Lord of the Rings into the fantasy genre as a whole, uh there were games that were directly based on the series that have been coming about since the 1980s. And I want to say Lord of the Rings is so influential that pretty much most fantasy things are based on Lord of the Rings in some form. Dungeon and Dragons takes a lot from Lord of the Rings. Other other fantasy stories like, I mean, Harry Potter takes a lot from Lord of the Rings. A lot of people take from Lord of the Rings.
0: But in that point, Lord of the Rings takes from other things.
1: Right. Lord of the Rings is also derivative of ancient myths and legends and Arthurian tales and quests and stuff like that. The Lord of the Rings is by no means an original story, but it helps solidify tale that was easily adaptable now some of the earliest licensed games developed based on the lord of the rings were graphical text adventures that were developed by a company called beam software and published by melbourne house back in 1982 the first game released by them would be the hobbit released for the zx spectrum and later ported to the bbc micro commodore 64 ibm pc and macintosh the hobbit follows the plot of the book directly and because it was officially licensed it actually included a copy of the book when you bought the game it was in the box so you got a full book with it when you purchased the game
0: that's great i bet those books are are probably valuable now i
1: think they were just the trades like, oh, i don't think, they? They, were, I don't the think they were like especially branded i think it was just the trade copy
0: they're just like hey, here you can have this now like most text adventures the game used a text parser but unlike other text adventures, the text parser was more complex. As we discussed, most text adventures would use a verb-noun structure for their text parsers in previous episodes we discussed it, not in this episode, just in case you were wondering where. Right,
1: yeah, in case you like thought you blacked out for a bit.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, Now, for example, if you wanted to pick up a book at the game, you might write get book. In The Hobbit, however, you could include adverbs, pronouns, and or prepositions. You could also type something out, like ask Gandalf about the curious map. Then, it take sword and kill troll with it the text parser was called english with an i and was intuitive enough to determine what you were planning and engage in the action
1: when you think about that sentence ask gandalf about the curious map then take sword and kill troll with it um this is like the example sentence i found on a bunch of different websites if you think about how that sentence is written a program that's not intuitive enough might have trouble with it because ask gandalf about the curious map then take sword and kill troll with it what are you killing the troll with with the sword? Or with the Curious Map? With Gandalf. With Gandalf. It was intuitive enough to know when you're typing a sentence like that, that you wanted to first ask Gandalf about the map, then take the sword, then kill the troll with the sword, not the map.
0: It could figure out context.
1: Yes, which which a lot of games back then couldn't.
0: (laughs) Correct. Now, The Hobbit featured some illustrations, and these illustrations, however, could take a while to load if, for example, you were using a computer with a slow CPU, or if you had a version of the game that was on a magnetic tape. The reason being is that while disc versions of the game could have pre-rendered graphics, the magnetic tape versions would require each image to be compressed so that the outlined information could be drawn first and then the illustrations would be flooded with color in a process called flood filling. Uh, Now, the game, while being a text adventure, could be played in various ways due to the fact that combat was often randomized. NPCs in the game also behaved independent of the player and had their own personalities and behaviors. While this, from a retrospective point, is fairly advanced, it actually led to some issues in the game. For example, crucial NPCs could die. When the game was released, the publisher would reissue a new version number, 1.1, with bug fixes. Also, unfortunately, 1.1 contained a glitch that would prevent the game from being able to finish, so the company had to issue version 1.2, which corrected the glitch. But I just imagine a world where you could be rolling around with Gandalf, and he just gets whacked.
1: (laughs) The NPCs of the game, this, let me tell you, this is a text of game with rudimentary graphics, the NPCs of the game will randomly leave you and go on adventures of their own and die.
0: That's great. It's like when uh, Gandalf went to Helm's Deep but failed.
1: It's like all the sequences in The Hobbit where Gandalf's like, okay, I gotta go. I'll be back later. And then he just never came back.
0: He's just like, oh man. I know this is a really critical mission, but I gotta go.
1: Now, Beam would go on to release the logical sequel to The Hobbit game, The Fellowship of the Ring, a software adventure known in Europe as as Lord of the Rings Game 1 and this was released in 1985. The game was also a text adventure but AI patterns and real-time elements that were in The Hobbit were excluded. Critics actually were unimpressed by it because of this reason. Included with the game was an instruction booklet that you could use to order a holographic picture of a ring wraith, which is just a fun little detail. Beam would release a third game in 1987 based on the two towers called Shadows of Mordor Game 2 of The Lord of the Rings which played similarly to their fellowship of the ring game and then they would later release a third game called the crack of doom in 1989 set during the events of the return of the king i like that they never named their games like after the books for the most part like one was called shadows of mordor game two of the lord of the rings if you didn't know what it was it is based on the two towers and the third game is called crack of doom Which, you know, ties in, ties in. Yeah, well, Crack of Doom is Mount Doom. It's the crack of Mount Doom
0: do you think the game Shadows of Mordor took their name of their game from the Beam game that was released in 1987?
1: I believe so. Melbourne House would also publish some other Lord of the Rings games. One not developed by Beam was a real-time strategy game developed by Virgin Mastronic in 1988 called War in Middle Earth. This game was released for MS-DOS, C64, Amstrad CPC, MSX, Amiga, Atari ST, Apple IIGS, and the ZX Spectrum. The game featured large armies where action. Could happen simultaneously in the game world. Battles with less than hundred units could actually be watched at the ground level from a side view. So, like, nice. imagine like a view of like Sonic, but with a bunch of figures running at other figures and killing each other.
0: So, like, the view that Bilbo would have had in the f- Five arms Yeah, as he's like sitting back. Yeah, exactly. Biologic.
1: If you had a battle with more than a hundred units, it would display as numerical values. Though I, I assume as the units drop, you could probably go down into the nitty gritty.
0: Oh, no. I was hoping that it would be numerical values as a side scroller. So it would be like the number 1000. Oh, that'd (laughs) be hilarious. And then as they die down to a certain level, they become people.
1: No, sadly, I think it looks like an Excel spreadsheet, which is what you want all your video games to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah, especially during this era.
1: Uh, Beyond being able to uh, engage in these battles, you could also talk to NPCs, like everyone's favorite NPC, (laughs) Tom Pompadil. That's right. Definitively the NPC of the Lord of the Rings he is.
0: Isn't he based on J.R.R. Tolkien?
1: I think he's a self-insert, yeah.
0: He's literally like the guy in Mist who's like st- like reading the book that you have to rescue. The game that Zach and I had, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings Volume 1 was released in 1990 for MS-DOS by Interplay Productions. It's a role-playing game where you take on the role of Frodo Baggins and the game follows the plot of the book though does have some elements that make it very different. For one thing, there are new characters in quests based on certain NPCs. One of these quests is finding pieces of the sword Narsil for Aragorn. For those who don't know, Narsil is the sword that cut the One Ring from Sauron's hand during the war. The sword does go on to get reforged as Anduril by Aragorn. Uh, the game also has a major departure from the book in some of the plot elements, such as a quest that involves recruiting Radagast the Brown to save Frodo
1: from the Witch King. I also feel like there's things you have to do in town that are just Weird. You have quests in the Shire. Like, you have to go find things for Is people there in the of, Shire. something
0: to do with the barrel or something? I yeah, don't...
1: you have to go find, like, a barrel. There's, like, I think someone's missing jewelry in the first mission like a ring or something not like the ring but a ring. yeah (laughs) yeah yeah
0: you're like simultaneously like also a detective you're like Frodo Baggins I think was he just a layabout though before I
1: mean aren't all hobbits layabouts
0: no Samwise Gamgee is a gardener and Mary and Pippin are pranksters
1: (laughs) right but when Bilbo returns from his quest he's basically an outcast because he went on a weird adventure with a bunch of hairy men
0: (laughs) Yeah, but he came back loaded, and he was
1: already pretty loaded. He was retired when they came to recruit him.
0: So, but what does Frodo do for his like day job? Nothing. I don't just know. Lives his off. uncle's
1: loaded. He probably just sleeps. <laughs> when you first see him in the movie, he's lounging in the grass. I know. Like I with a wheat least... in his mouth. I feel like... Like, I
0: feel like Elijah Wood is always lounging in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Now, Lord of the Rings Volume 1 was also released on the Super Nintendo by Interplay. This version of the game departs from the DOS version, both in graphics and gameplay. Uh, instead of being a role playing game, this game's more of an action role playing game. So you're stabbing a lot more than waiting to stab. You play as members of the Fellowship who you have to acquire throughout the game. The game is multiplayer, with up to four players being possible through your. of a multi-tap, which is an accessory that nobody had and in single player the non-player controlled characters will be controlled by the computer the game's AI is a bit off in some places with characters occasionally just wandering around somewhat aimlessly
1: now a follow up to the DOS game not the Super Nintendo game was made which is fun so the the Super Nintendo game is called Lord of the Rings Volume 1 there's no Volume 2 but the DOS game got a follow up J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings Volume 2 The Two Towers which is a mouthful of a name. This released in 1992 for DOS, PC98, and the FM Towns. The game played similarly to the first, and uh, a Volume 3 would ultimately never come out. Lord of the Rings games would officially jump to the world of 3D in 2002, with the release of The Lord of the Rings The Fellowship of the Ring by Surreal Software for Windows and PS2. This game was also available on Xbox and Game Boy Advance. Interestingly enough, while the game was released a whole year after the release of the first movie, it has not nothing to do with the movie. It is licensed 100% directly off the book, not the movies. So I'm sure a ton of movie fans and children getting gifts from their parents were very disappointed. This was actually done intentionally. Uh, Vivendi, who were publishing the game, wanted the game to only be based on the novel and not to be confused for the movie. And It was likely due to the fact that Vivendi had the rights to the book adaptation, while EA had the rights to producing the games for the movie adaptation adaptation. This also didn't stop Vivendi from making the game, like, cover art look a lot like the movie's logo, I will say. Like, Vivendi, I think, they were like, hey, we can't get sued by, uh, by New Line, but let's at least get people to buy this by mistake. Vivendi would also release The Hobbit, and they would actually publish it through Sierra Entertainment in 2003. I personally remember always wanting to play The Hobbit, because I love The Hobbit as a book, and I loved the movie, like the original animated film, so I remember seeing ads for the Game and being like, I want this game so bad. And I remember, and Seth does not remember, but I remember once coming home and seeing a copy of the game like at home. And I was like, I'm so excited to play this. And then when I was going to look for it one day, I didn't see it. And I think I asked Seth, I said, Seth, didn't you pick up a copy of The Hobbit? And he said, That game's garbage. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was. It probably was. It was not an RPG. It's actually a hack and slash platformer where you play as Bilbo. And uh, you go through the storyline of the book. As much as a platform hack and slash could go through the storyline of a novel.
0: So in the defense of The Hobbit, from my understanding of The Hobbit, is that It is a fine hack and slash game. It doesn't have any issues with, you are able to platform correctly with it. You're able to attack enemies and fight enemies. It's a a game that works. And I think that it is actually playing it with that Just wanting to play a hack and slash set in the Hobbit world. I think it is a good game. I think that a lot of people went into it expecting something else out of it, and it was not. So there's a lot of people that have memories of it being like, that game was garbage.
1: We'll get a bit more into it in the Legacy, but since the release of the Hobbit game, there have been many other games based in the world of Middle Earth, but this episode does have to end somewhere. So, Seth, why don't we get into the numbers a bit of some of the older Lord of the Rings games?
0: Sure. Now, Beam Software's The Hobbit, was particularly successful on release. In its first two years, it sold 100,000 units and in total would sell over 500,000 units across Europe. In 1983, it won the Golden Joystick Award for the best strategy game, and The Hobbit received strong praise from most critics due to the text parser and AI. However, Macworld would give the game a pretty negative review in 1989, calling it clumsy, noting that The Hobbit and other Beam Software titles were faithful to the books. According to an archived version of Beam Software website, The Lord of the Rings Game 1, was released to huge commercial success, but they do not provide an exact number of what that success meant. Now, War in the Middle Earth had mediocre scores, with Dragon giving it a 3 out of 5 in their 1989 review. Meanwhile, Compute with an exclamation point review said it was faithful to the books. Zzap64 review gave it an overall score of 69%, with most of the points being awarded to presentation and sound, and graphics being the biggest criticism. Lord of the Rings Volume 1 for MS-DOS sold fairly well, at least selling well enough to earn a sequel unless one was already in the pipeline when it was released. Reviews at the time were mixed, with some giving the game high reviews, but others being far more critical. Charles Adar of Computer Gaming World in his 1991 review said that the game was not special enough to carry on the Tolkien name. Uh, the 1991 issue of Dragon, however, gave it a 4 out of 5 stars. The Lord of the Rings Volume for the SNES sold so badly that the sequel would be cancelled. In 2002, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring game would sell over 1 million units and be declared a commercial success. However, in reviews, it scored terribly, with GameSpot giving it the PC version a 5.7, IGN giving it a 6.5 out of 10, and GameSpy giving it 2 out of 5 stars. It has since been remembered as the worst Lord of the Ring games ever made. The Hobbit would equally score some mediocre reviews, with games. Spot giving all versions a 6.5 out of 10. Game Spy giving a game a 2 out of 5 stars and PC Gamer ranking at the 67%. Now, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe like sh- the Shadow of Mordor game would be the game that came out after
1: No, because the Lord of the Rings online game came out before that. Um, which was completely separate from the movies. And then there were the, based on the Peter Jackson movie uh, games, like Two Towers, Return of the King, The Third Age, Battle for Middle-Earth. I feel like people were excited
0: for those games because we were starting to get into a stride of games that were not reviewed so poorly. (laughs) Like, they weren't bad games. They were starting to be good, with Shadow of Mortar being very popular.
1: Prior to Shadow of Mortar it was Guardians of Middle-Earth, which was the moba and then shadow of mordor came out shadow of mordor and guardians of middle earth are apparently based in the same like they're by the same people so they're in the same little collective the cinematic universe i guess so yeah i mean it's warner brothers that produced them so now in terms of legacy of the games uh the lord of the rings games are actually still in fact being made a survival crafting multiplayer game called return to moria released as early as uh, october of 2023 now another game golem released in may of 2023 and it was terrible it was so terrible in fact everyone thought it was terrible wasn't just like people were like, hey, this game is actually not that bad. No. The internet collectively decided it was a terrible game and it was very funny for a while. Golem was the game that I actually brought up very long time ago when I saw it at PAX and I said, I don't think that game would be good because I don't see why a Golem game would ever be good. And guess what? was awful. For those who don't know, the Golem game is a game where you play as Golem during the, I think the era between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, it's just a broken game. Like they're, all the graphics are bad in it. Uh, like, a lot of the, uh, textures are very low poly and low, uh, low quality. Um, some of the rendered stuff just looks terrible. And, uh, the game's visuals just are not good, and the gameplay is also very bad. Uh, one thing people like to point out is all of the font appears to be in, like, Helvetica. Uh, which is not something you'd expect from, like, a polished game to use the... Very base font that you could possibly use for something. Of course, as Seth was alluding to, we had the Shadow of Mordor games. Those were released. Those were very popular. Also, with the release of the movies, we had a swath of tie-ins. There were games based on the movie... Two Towers based on Return of the King, and there were games that were based on the movie's universe without any direct, like, story to the movies, stuff like that. So there's plenty of Lord of the Rings content out there. One thing I did want to touch upon, because I do like touching upon this sort of thing, is unofficial games that have existed alongside the official games, one of the earliest being a side-scroller for the ZX Spectrum, VIC-20, and Commodore 64, called Shadowfax, which was released in 1982 by Postern. In the game, you play as Gandalf, and you escape the ring Ringwraith, on Shadowfax, which is his horse. That's fun. There's another game called Moria, which was released in 1983. This was a roguelike, which followed the plot of the Fellowship of the Ring very loosely. And uh, different versions of Moria were also sold. One called Angbond, which is based on the Silmarillion. Um, And there were also two MUDs that were based on the Moria engine. One being the Lord of the Rings, Moom. Moom being multi-users in Middle-Earth. Kind of a fun play on (laughs) multi-user dungeon. And another based on the Two Towers. In 1985, a parody of The Lord of the Rings was released by a company called Delta IV called Board of the Rings. It was a text adventure that was inspired by the book of the same name, by the Harvard Lampoon, though it is not an adaptation of the book. Uh, So none of the characters are the same characters from the Harvard Lampoon book. They just were like, this is a fun name for a parody. Let's steal it. Uh, Delta IV also released a prequel called the Bogget board 2. <laughs> That's fun. And with that that will do it for our Lord of the Rings episode. a good episode to lead us into Christmas. I don't know why. Lord of the Rings feels like one of those movies that I think I watched at some Christmas many years ago. So sometimes I emotionally connect it with Christmas. Like Empire Strikes Back for some reason. I I always connect Empire Strikes Back with Christmas, but I think it's because of Hoth.
0: And it's also a very cheery movie.
1: It is, especially the part where Luke gets his hand cut off and cries. Getting into our retro rewind, Seth had me play Mighty Morphin Power Rangers for the Sega Genesis. Released in 1994, the game is a 1v1 fighting game where you play as a member of The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I played first as the Red Ranger, because he was the first person you can pick. And then I got unceremoniously beaten by the first enemy, who was a minotaur.
0: It wasn't a putty? That'd be funny. It it wasn't a putty.
1: putty. (laughs) No, it was a minotaur. I then switched to the Black Ranger and did a little bit better, but I still lost. The truth is I'm terrible at fighting games, but more to the truth is the fact that this game also got bad reviews at the time, with everyone saying it was way too hard. So... I don't feel that bad about it. I did find the game kind of neat. I liked the aesthetic. I like Power Rangers. I think they're fun. And it it does kind of have a nice 90s vibe to it. However, it does feel a bit derivative of other fighting games to the point where I'm pretty sure when your character lights on fire, it is literally stolen sprites from Street Fighter. (laughs) Good. Do I think it holds up? No. If you really like Power Rangers, maybe you'll enjoy playing it, but if you just want to play a fighting game, let me tell you, there are plenty of better fighting games on the Sega Genesis out there, like Street Fighter. I want to keep with this theme though, Seth. I want to, I want you to talk about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers next week. I'm going to have you play Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie, the game for the Sega Genesis.
0: That's exciting. I think I actually played that when I was a child. Zach had me play X-Men 2 Clone Wars, which actually has the most incredible intro for Sega Genesis game it's a cold open and it's a cold open in more ways than one since the opening opens straight to a level, and there's no intro, there's not even a Sega logo, and that level takes place in a cold environment. So it's a cold, it's a cold open into a cold open. You can play as either Wolverine, Gambit, Cyclops, Beast, Psylocke, or my favorite, Nightcrawler. Each mutant plays a little bit differently, and each one can use their powers as much as they want, or as little as they want, I guess, uh, which is an improvement on the original X-Men game on the Sega Genesis, where uh, you would run out of mutant powers, which is lame. It's odd, like that doesn't and make sense. Wow, oh, my claws just not working anymore. Says Wolverine. Never. Furthermore, and if Cyclops ran out of optic blast, I think he would. I think he would be so happy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, can you take off his glasses, finally? That poor guy.
0: Furthermore, the game has multiplayer where you can play with somebody else that Zach and I did actually all the time because we owned this game. Though, the multiplayer could be frustrating because the camera is not cooperative at all. The game takes place during the Phalanx story, which came out during the mid-90s, around the time that the game was being developed because it was released in 95, the Phalanx stories took place in 94, which is about the Phalanx virus, which is a computer virus, techno race, and... And is trying to take over the world and it starts by taking over in the video game a sentinel manufacturing facility which if you are a x-men and you have learned that a techno virus that is all about destroying the world is taking over a factory where they can create robots you might want to stop that. So you go there you blow up the sentinel factory and then the techno virus goes over to take over Avalon which is also bad but when you help defeat Avalon from getting taken over someone Special joins the group as playable, and that's good old Magneto. And then you get to play as Magneto, who is the most overpowered mutant in this game and also in life. You can just float around and blast people, and it's great. It's not a spoiler because this game is ancient, so too bad. Anyway, this game, of course, holds up, especially if you like X-Men, platforming, and action. It's a great game. I would definitely actually recommend playing X2 over the X-Men. The X-Men game that came before this game is not bad, but X2 is very good. My favorite characters are of course Magneto and Nightcrawler probably followed by either Beast because he has that weird smash ability that like shoots out those like I don't know teardrops that come flying out or Wolverine because you can dance in like the air with skipping anyway next week Zach you can play Dark Legions for MS-DOS
1: well thank you Seth now, thank you everyone for tuning in. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Dad, if you're listening out there, please send us any corrections to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, classicgamingbrothers.com, or follow us on Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, CG Brothers Pod, or Blue Sky CG Brothers Pod. We're available wherever podcasts can be found, be it iHeartRadio or Podbean or iTunes. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow us, ring bells, do all the things that you would do to let us know that you like to hear our voice every Sunday, including on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas if you celebrate, if you don't, happy holidays and happy new year. Seth, am I forgetting something?
0: Don't play games like my brother.
1: And don't play games like my brother.
0: I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's